Built Not Born, episode 124. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is J.P. Dinell. J.P. Dinell is a former U.S. Navy SEAL and now a leadership instructor, speaker, and strategic advisor with Echelon Front, the leadership company started by U.S. Navy SEAL officer Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. J.P. with three combat deployments served as point man, machine gunner, and sniper for SEAL Team 3's Task Unit Bruiser, the most decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. JP was the lead sniper for Delta Platoon, opposite of American sniper Chris Kyle, who was lead sniper in Charlie Platoon and was the subject of Clint Eastwood's movie, American Sniper. For his service, JP was awarded a Silver Star, two Bronze Stars with Valor, and the Army Commendation Medal with Valor. JP worked closely with SEAL officers Jocko Willink, his task unit commander, and Leif Babin, and was the driving force on many of the daring combat operations Jocko and Leif write about in their best-selling book, Extreme Ownership. JP and I discuss his childhood, how he became a Navy SEAL, where he was and how he found out about the 9-11 attacks, and his time serving as lead sniper. JP and I also discuss his transition out of combat and the challenges professionally and personally that transition can take on many of our service people. It was such an honor to get JP on the show. JP is so open and honest in sharing his story of the successes, of the struggles, of the hardships. JP and I also discussed the principles of extreme ownership, the leadership principles that Jocko Wellink and Leif Babin based their book, Extreme Ownership, on. It was such a fun conversation with so many life lessons that JP teases out through his time in the SEAL teams and in business. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with J.P. Dinell, former U.S. Navy SEAL, sniper, machine gunner, family man, and entrepreneur. And remember, life is built, not born. Here we go. J.P. Dinell, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, sir. It's a JP. It is such an honor to have you on. JP, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? So my name is JP Danell. I'm originally from Sacramento, California, born and raised in the same house that my dad grew up in, which is really cool. I uh, went to same uh, same elementary school, same high school that my dad went to. I had a really good upraising, really really good, strong Christian parents that instilled us, instilled into our family, uh, you know, really good values and work ethic. And I'm very thankful for that because I know, unfortunately, that's not a commonality uh, amongst, you know, people. And I'm just so thankful that my parents did what they did to take care of us uh, and, and, and really instill into us the values of hard work and, you know, maintain your integrity and your ethics, because those are things that ultimately we can control. And I learned that from an early age, you can always control your attitude, your work ethic, your integrity and your discipline. Yeah. And, it, and that wasn't something that my parents just preached to us. It's what they lived and it's what they showed us. And so very thankful for that. You know, I grew up playing Navy SEALs. I wa always wanted to be in the military and I was infatuated by the military and by the SEAL teams and, you know, and all that stuff. And, I was able to fulfill a childhood dream and go into the military. Um, I joined the Navy September 5th, 2001. I was in boot camp when 9-11 happened. I had a contract that said, hey, you know, you can go try to become a Navy SEAL. Nothing's guaranteed. And uh, so I, I got done with boot camp, my basic schooling in the Navy. And then I went to BUDS. I checked in to class 242. I graduated with class 242. And, uh, you know, there's about 222 guys that started day one. And I was one of 28 of those originals that graduated, uh, which is pretty crazy to think about and enjoyed what I did in the SEAL teams. Uh, you know, I was a machine gunner, I was a sniper, I was a point man, you know, I was a lead driver. I got to go to all these really cool schools and be able to learn these really cool skill sets by military uh, members of different branches, you know 
fellow SEALs, civilians, you know, uh, our training was very diverse, which was really cool. And I really enjoyed what I was able to do in the, in the military. And the military also showed me that, especially the SEAL teams, they had a very high value and place a lot of importance on training to develop individuals to be who they needed to be, to give them the skill sets and the training to grow and develop them. You know, now we all have natural characteristics and traits that are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you know, with jujitsu and life in general, um, you know, these are all skill sets that we learn. So I'll give a, I'll give a pretty uh, drastic example. Racism. Are, are kids born racist? Uh, no. No way. No, you no way. No like chance. it's not that is taught. That's yeah. unfortunately, but it's a taught characteristic, right? It's a trait, it's it's something that's taught to them. Yep. Just like you teach people don't know how to do jujitsu naturally. Mm-hmm. They're taught sure. it. Some people are have that that natural ability to to retain it faster. It's like shooting a gun. I can teach you to how to shoot a gun. If you've never shot a rifle before in your life, within one day one day, not even a full day, bro. But within a a session of us working together, a couple hours, almost a full day on the range, I guarantee you, you will be hitting a target at a thousand yards. Dang. (laughs) That's what I do. That's literally what I do. I teach people how to do that. And I've taken people that have never shot a rifle past a hundred yards before. And at the end of day one, they're hitting a target at a thousand yards. Yeah, That's a skill set. It's taught. It's like leadership is taught. Um, All these things are taught. They're acquired. And, uh, you know, I know I started off with a crazy example, but to me that I try to use that as an attention grabber when we're talking about like, hey, all these things that we do in life, they're taught. They're taught to us, whether subconsciously or consciously. I mean, you look at little kids at a young age, they don't care. They literally don't care about your skin color or, or, or where you're from or anything. They just, kids are kind and they're, they're, they're pure and they're innocent. And, you know, that hatred that comes into our hearts as we get older is taught to us. Well, here's the cool thing. If that can be taught to us, guess what else can be taught to us? Love, exactly. compassion, joy, forgiveness, yeah. grace, empathy, leadership, communication, the ability to listen, like all those things can be taught to us as well. So yeah. that's what I saw in the military. That's what I learned in the military. And it was it was pretty cool. I loved my time in the SEAL teams. I got to work for Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, who started Echelon Front. They wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy of Leadership. And as you have, you have those copies right there. Let's go. Uh, and so I uh, I really enjoyed my time in the military and i learned a lot well first off thank you for sharing all that what i wanted to do jp real quick go through your amazing story you give us some of the highlights of your time at task unit bruiser silver star winner two bronze stars lead sniper delta platoon i believe chris kyle was the lead sniper of charlie company charlie yep. platoon go through that also too one of the things i really connected with your story i've been lucky enough to be on the extreme ownership website uh since or maybe since launch and you are so open of sharing. You're so relatable. Where like Jocko's kind of like to me, like that, like that George Washington figure. Like he's at the statue. Like sometimes it's hard to relate. Like he's like every day it's 4:30. Sometimes it's 3:30. He's up. But like you, like you talk about your struggles and you talk about like the highs and the lows and 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 you share like what you went through. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to get to a couple of life lessons we could tease out. First off, one of the things that struck me, um, when you first went to the Navy recruiter, I believe you told in one of the podcasts, they laughed at you and they said, hey, for the wannabe Navy SEALs, that recruiter comes back next week and yeah. come back later. Can you tell that story? I thought that was pretty pretty wild. Yeah, so I walked in the recruiting office. Again, this is before 9-11. I walk in there and they asked me what I what I wanted. And I told them I you know, wanted information on becoming a Navy SEAL. They all started laughing at me, all kind of chuckling and everything, and that that pissed me off. And then I remember this senior chief that was sitting in the back corner. Uh, he said uh, two things, young man. One, the Navy ain't going to touch you with that cast in your hand because I had a cast on my hand at the time, you know, from hand all the way up to like mid mid wrist. He's like, the Navy ain't going to touch you with that cast on your hand. Can't start the process. We can't do anything for you. 
And then he said, number two, the Navy SEAL wannabe recruiter, they're not going to be back until Tuesday. So, or Thursday. He's like, they're not going to be back until Thursday. If you want to come back in two days, you know, have at it. I was there on a Tuesday. I said, all right, Roger that. You know, it was very respectful, got my information. But when he said the Navy SEAL wannabe recruiter, mm-hmm. that just, man, that just fired me up and just, you know, frustrated me. It challenged me, however you want to say it. And I, um, you know, I went home and I told my dad, I said, Hey, you know, he asked me how work was. Cause I, I had taken a little break from work. I was working at a pizza place across the street and um, I go back to that pizza place and I was just sitting there thinking, and, and, and that's when I decided, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, now I was an athlete. Yeah, I did a lot of different sports. So I was in really good shape. So I, I wasn't worried about that aspect of it. I was a strong swimmer. I was comfortable in the water. I did swim team and water polo. I used to go to the river and swim in the rapids and swim upstream and practice breath holes going down the bottom of the river and pulling yourself upstream and doing stuff like that. So I was comfortable with that. And I, I just knew that I knew that I could make it through it. And, you know, I was young. Um, I knew a little bit about the SEAL teams. Like I said, I always wanted to be a Navy SEAL, so I always thought about that. And Then I um, I go home and I tell my dad, I'm like, hey, I want to join the Navy and be a Navy SEAL. And I said, but they won't take me with this cast on my hand. And my dad said, all right. So he has me go in the bathroom and, and start soaking my cast um, in warm water and uh in the bathtub and he comes in in a few minutes and he has these tools and we cut my cast off and uh you know i don't recommend doing that 11 days later after breaking your hand and you know fracturing your wrist and having a cast on um but my dad knew that he needed to capitalize on me wanting to go do this and i went back in the recruiter's office two days later and i remember walking in and that senior chief who's sitting in the corner, he looks at me, he smiles because he looks down at my hand. I don't have a cast on it. He looks at me and he smiles and he says, Petty Officer Garrett's going to take care of you, young man. And I started working with this guy. Mark, his name's Marcus Garrett, Petty Officer Marcus Garrett. And um, yeah, it's crazy, man. And so I just started the process that summer and I worked construction for my dad that whole summer. And, you know, I couldn't even grip like a pen to sign my name and uh my dad we took these kickboxing hand wraps and we wrapped my hand real nice and tight and then i grabbed a hammer and he took tape and then he wrapped like the hammer into my grip with uh duct tape and athletic tape and that's how i would work eight ten hours a day for my dad until my grip got strong enough and by just doing construction and grabbing stuff and holding stuff it strengthened my hand where I was able to start doing push-ups again and pull-ups because I couldn't grip anything, right? And mm-hmm. I'd be on the job site with him and, you know, there, he'd have me do like a set of pull-ups or just hang from the, hang from like a two-by-four or something there is there. So you're just like working on that grip strength and I would just, you know, just do stuff all throughout the day. So you go through BUDS, you, you go through SEAL training. How'd you wind up sniper? Like what, what, how'd you decide to go that route? Um, well, it's something I always was intrigued and fascinated by. And so I come back from my first deployment and uh, they're like, hey, we got slots for sniper school. And I'm like raising my hand and they're like, Danelle, you're going, you know, just kind of like, so I got selected to go. And I think that's um, what had a little bit to do because they needed guys to go to it because we needed to have a, a good amount of guys prepped up as, as snipers. But also I had a good relationship with some of the older snipers and I would ask them questions and spend a lot of time trying to learn what I could from them. And so I think that had a little bit of influence over them picking for me to go to, to sniper school. And I, man, I love sniper school. I did really well there. I was in line to be the honor grad and I got sick in sniper school, super sick. And I missed one of the, one of the tests that we had to do mm-hmm. and I wasn't able to make it up. And so unfortunately, like with my score, I wasn't number one, I was number two, uh, which is crazy. It was like, I was still number two, even with not being able to make up that score. That's how decent I did uh, in that schooling, not to be cocky or arrogant, but I was very dedicated and disciplined in that training. And I was just completely, completely immersed into everything that we did. 
Did you grow up shooting, or is that something you picked up in the Navy? We, I didn't touch a gun until I was in the military. Wow, that's crazy. Okay. Now, I had pellet guns, right? Yeah. I would play with pellet guns, but I never touched a, a pistol or a rifle or a hunting rifle until I was in the military. Wow. No shotguns, no, just nothing, no, no weapons. That's wild. And one thing I just glanced over, one story I found, you told them on the podcast, you said you joined the Navy September 5th, 2001. What was it like September 11th? You mentioned a story that someone came in and told you that the towers were hit. Could you tell that story real quick? I thought that was pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm literally like just standing there uh, in at the end of my bed, right? And uh, boot camp at the end of my, our rack, as we call it, our, your rack. And I'm sitting there talking with this other kid. And uh, I say kid because we're both 18 years old at the time. And uh, Jake Wright, he, I think he might still be in the Navy. He's probably at like 22 years in the Navy, you know, uh, which is incredible. But, but anyways, Jake and I are sitting there talking with each other. And um, <clears throat> the doors like fling open and this senior chief walks in. And I just remember him walking in, just like the look of intensity on his face. And he's standing there and he's like, our nation's been attacked. We might be going to war. And then, boom, walked out. And I'm like, what? And everyone's like trying to process it. And initially I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, we're at war. I thought it was some training drill. Literally, I thought it was a training drill. And I didn't think anything of it. And then when we realized it was a real thing, there was a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, you know, just people not knowing what was next. And I, I can tell you, honestly, I had zero fear. I, because there was no uncertainty for me. I knew what was next in my life. I knew that I was going to San Diego. I was going to have an opportunity to go through buds to try to become a Navy SEAL. And as long as I didn't quit, I'd be in the SEAL teams. And if the war was still going on, I would go fight. And that's all I wanted to do. And it wasn't anything more special or sexy than that. It was just like, no, you know what? I had zero fear because I knew what was next for me. And I share that aspect of the story with people because there are times that people go through life where they just don't know what's next. They don't have anything planned. They're not, you know, shooting. And, you know, that's when that fear creeps in. That's when that uncertainty creeps in. That's when that doubt creeps in when you don't know what's next for you. First, thank you for sharing that. Fast forward a little bit. How did you get to SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser? How did you get to linked up with Jocko? And then how did you become part of uh, Task Unit Bruiser when you head off to Ramadi in 06? Yeah, so I make it through BUDS. Uh, and, uh, and then I was going through SQT, which is SEAL qualification training. And that's when I first started working for uh, Leif Babin and Seth Stone and Andrew Paul who were all in task and a bruiser. And so I was working with these guys in SQT. They were all officers. There's a delay after buds before SQT for the officers. They go through some advanced SEAL training, leadership training for the officers to be able to lead guys in, in this advanced training and then prepare them for when they get to the SEAL teams. And so it's cool because it gives you a little bit of separation between the officers that you were going through buds with. And then now you as and I, I like the way they do it, because when you go through SQT, it's it's advanced SEAL qualification training. So now they're like giving you legitimate skill sets to prepare you for the SEAL team. So reality of what they're trying to accomplish is when you get down with SQT, you could go check into a SEAL team and then be deployed overseas right away mm -hmm. and not be an asset. I'm sorry, not be a liability. You're enough of an asset to where it's like, okay, cool. We'll take this brand new guy who hasn't even done training with us, but he has these basic skills that can get the job done. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. It's really cool the way that they do that. And uh, so there was a separation between the enlisted and the officers. And now you have these officers coming in to the training and it just gives them that separation from the training. Mm -hmm. So now they can have a better leadership role and, you know, and have that authority and mindset that they need to properly have to actually lead us uh, as we prepare. And so that's when I first started working with those guys. I check in a SEAL Team 3 Delta Platoon with Seth Stone. We both go there together. We do a workup deployment. We're in Tascina Bravo, you know, uh, Charlie Platoon and Delta Platoon are working together. We come back from that deployment and that's when Jocko came into our task unit to be our task unit commander. 
And, um, you know, the first thing he did is he changed her name from Tasking a Bravo to Tasking a Bruiser. And uh, that was to just kind of reshape our mindset and our frame of mind. And for us to be able to focus on what really mattered, which was preparing for combat, training for the enemy that we knew were up against us, and to push away and eliminate all the previous drama that we had in our task unit so that we could really focus on what was important as we move forward. So that's that's how I, uh, I was always in task unit Bravo, and it just became task unit Bruiser when Jocko came in to be our task unit commander. Yeah. When you went to Ramadi, was it on fire when you went there or did it slowly boil up when you were there? Like when you went in there, did you know you were going into the fire? Or So Ramadi was crazy in 2005 and we yeah. went there in 2006. So at the end of our first deployments, we were in Baghdad and we had some guys that pushed out west to Ramadi and they're like, bro, it's like the freaking wild, wild west. Like it's insane there. And that was... That was in February, March, April timeframe of 2005 when those guys were there. And that's when it was starting to get bad. And it just continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse until and when we showed up, I mean, it was it was still really bad. I mean, we showed up and this unit had been there, the 228. They're a National Guard unit out of Pennsylvania. And they had been they had been there for 14 months. And what's crazy, bud? Joe, they they had been in combat every single day of those 14 months. So not just a combat zone, but they had been in actual combat every single day for 14 months straight. You know, they controlled less than a third of the city. Um, 94 members of the unit had been killed in action. Over 300 had been wounded. And I mean, it was just, it was just absolute chaos absolute chaos when we got there and it continued to be chaos while we were there, but we were able to help deliver impact a, uh, another army unit came in, replaced the two, two, eight. Uh, they were called the one, one AD, uh, AD stands for armored division. And so they brought in these tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles and Humvees and all these other things. And it was, you know, it was really impressive what what they were able to do while they were there because yeah they had this new strategy and then they were you know it was it's pretty impressive to be honest like as as i look back now and say okay this was like when we first got there when they got there and then at, at the progression you know you go from 30 to 50 enemy attacks every single day mm-hmm. To one a day in six months. Wow. 30 to 50 goes to one. And, yep. It was 30 to 50 enemy attacks every single day. And then it went to one a day. And then it was one a week. Pretty closely after that, when the other unit came in to replace us. And then it became like one a month. And then then, and then a year after we left, I mean, there was no enemy attacks. It was one of the safest areas in all of Iraq. I mean, these these local civilians, they ran a 5k fun run down a road that we called route Michigan. And when we were there route, Michigan was the most violent and dangerous road in the world. There was was a little two to two and a half mile stretch, Joe. And there was seven to 10 enemy attacks every single day on that road. Wow. Every single day. And then when you go from that many attacks every single day to and in a year, they're running a 5K fun run. It was it was pretty crazy. Bad. That is insane. Yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. So, and what, what, so uh, besides killing a lot of the enemy, you have to win the hearts and mind of the people a little bit to to stop the attacks to that level. Like what, not, what a, some, not a little bit. There, that's a lot. A lot. Yeah, I mean, insane. Uh, because here's the deal: evil exists. There's a lot of evil in the world, mm-hmm. and if we, if it was just a killing game, we would still be over there killing. Okay. I mean, literally, it's just there's an endless supply of those uh, Mujahideen fighters that just want to, you know, come and do evil things. Cool. We got an endless supply of ammo for those guys. However, however, you know, that wasn't the solution. You know, that's a that's a tactical win, strategic loss because you're still there. Mm-hmm. And we had to we had to start thinking about things differently. 
We had to start building relationships. We had to give the local populace ownership. We had to give their local military ownership. We had to give their local police ownership and train them up and equip them and allow them to take responsibility for, for their place. And then so much as so task unit bruiser, the most decorated special operations unit in the Iraq war, a fair to say. Yeah. And in the subject of a movie, uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, American Sniper, Chris Goss. So you were yeah. head sniper, Delta platoon, uh, Chris Kyle, head sniper, Charlie platoon. Yeah. So Chris was a point man, elite sniper in Delta platoon. And I was a point man, elite sniper in, in, I'm sorry, Chris is a point man, elite sniper in Charlie platoon. I was a point man, elite sniper in Delta platoon. So we were each other's counterparts. So if you've read American sniper or watched the movie, American sniper, and you remember when they were teasing him about the young sniper catching up to him? Was that you? That's my that question. That was when I was 23. <laughs> really? You're going to catch it? Because that was a question I had. Were you the young, they said some young snipers coming up, catching yeah. up to him? That was you. Yep. Now, with you, Chris, like, would you talk shop? Like, when you guys were on all missions, would you guys talk? Like, like was, would you guys share ideas, best practices? Like, when you guys are that level, like, is that like LeBron talking to Kobe? Like, they're trying to refine each other's game? <laughs> that's a unique comparison um those guys were were incredible basketball players but uh well kobe is you know that guy was incredible right um so yeah we would definitely talk but it wasn't just like chris and i it was all of us we were all talking i mean i had guys in my platoon that were freaking incredible incredible snipers you know my he's out so i can say his name now but my buddy benny he was a way better sniper than me but he was a good leader. And because he was in a leadership position, he allowed me to be the lead sniper and he was acting as our platoon chief. Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy, I learned so much from Benny over the years. It was, it was incredible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so we were always constantly talking and Benny and I, we, I mean, dude, we talked about everything. It was awesome. But um, it reminds me, I gotta, I gotta reach out to him today. Just check <laughs> in, make sure he's so, good. So, let's touch on the movie real quick. If you see that movie, American Star, when you sit and watch that, right? And you sat when it came out years ago and watched it. What percent of that do you like? Wow, they captured that. That that's a fair interpretation of like, wow, that's crazy. That never happened. What, what, what percent would you say? Like, all right, this is real. That's not real. Well, you're gonna hate me, Joe, because I've never watched the whole movie. Okay. I started at one time and then I can't remember what happened. And then I didn't start, I didn't finish it. And then I started reading American Sniper and then Chris reached out to me and he was just like, Hey man, have you read my book yet? I'm like, I just started. Like I literally just started like the first couple pages. Mm -hmm. He goes, can you stop reading it? And I'm like, okay. He goes, Jesse Ventura is suing me and you were there that night and witnessed it. So I was, you know, he needed me to testify on Chris's behalf without being able to say, be influenced by the books so that I could legally, I'm sorry, not legally, but I could honestly say on stand what I saw. Okay. It wasn't based off of what I read. So I was okay. like, oh, oh. so I, so did I haven't even finished the book. Wow. Like I, I never got the book back because, you know, Chris ended up being murdered and, you know, he had the whole lawsuit and then Chris was murdered and, and I just, I've never opened the book back up. I mean, it sits right here on my bookshelf. Mm -hmm. um, I need to read it. I need to watch the movie. I just, man, I, I just haven't yet, man. Understood. No, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, forward a little bit, you share in a bunch of the podcasts, uh, Jocko, had you on in, in your time at Echelon Front. When you transitioned out, the last mission, so you you kind of cut your finger pretty deep, right? You kind of had an injury. And yeah, then yeah, I cut this finger down. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I cut this finger down. I was trying to show you in my brain. It makes yeah. sense. I cut this finger down to the bone, and um, they I got life lighted out for an emergency surgery because I thought I was going to lose my finger. And uh, I, you know, I go get that surgery. I'm at this other base. I come back, and I like I get back to to my guys. I was actually supposed to be down there for a little bit longer and I just got my stuff and left and caught a convoy back to <laughs> back to base. And, but I was able to link up with them and uh, it, it kept me off one of our last missions, uh, which was, you know, devastating because, you know, I'd been on every mission with those guys 
And, you know, I missed out on that mission. And we were, I mean, we were packed up and ready to go home. And an army unit requested some additional sniper support from our guys. And so we sent two small elements down there. Uh, they engaged multiple enemy fighters throughout the day. Um, and one of them got close enough to the building undetected, threw a grenade up on the rooftop, and it hit Mikey Mansoor in the chest. It bounced in front of him. And instead of him jumping back to avoid the blast, he jumped on top of the grenade because of the two other guys on the rooftop with him. He absorbed the majority of that blast. And, you know, Mikey fought to stay alive for about 30 minutes before he died due to his, his wounds. Uh, he was possibly awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. And, um, you know, we commissioned a destroyer in his name as well. And, um, you know, Mikey was an incredible human. And, you know, it's easy for, for people to think and say, well, man, I probably would have done the same thing had my teammates been next to me up there. I don't know, man. Like, I'm not saying that I don't know towards me. I'm just saying, you know, when when most regular people, and I don't mean regular people in a bad negative way, but when people say that and they haven't experienced the bond of combat mm -hmm. and going through training like we did, it, it's something different, right? Now, you would do it for your kids. You would do it for your loved ones without even thinking, you know, like I wouldn't even think about that. Uh, and I think that's why Mikey was able to do that for um, those two guys that were on the rooftop with them because of the love and the bond and the connection that they had. But here's the other thing, Joe. I also believe that Mikey was able to do it without hesitation because he he had a good relationship with God. He was saved and he knew where he was going. He knew he was going to heaven. Like the, his, there was no question about like, well, hey heaven or hell no no I, I i'm going to heaven and that's something that mike and i we would talk about a lot of mm -hmm. uh, just hey like we talk about god and our relationship with god and we'd read the bible together and i would pray over our guys before we went out on every single mission and you know that's another thing that i held on to for a very long time of guilt was just you know it's the one mission that i wasn't on the one mission that i didn't pray over the group and I mean, I held on to a lot of guilt for a lot of years for that. But then, you know, you, you just you, you can't play that game. Nah, that's so hard because I mean, you know, like you said, like it, you, it, there's re there's reason things happen, and there's a reason you weren't there. Who knows why, why God had that in the in, in the uh, in the cards? But there was a reason you weren't there at that time, right? I mean, it yeah. just. I mean, you're you're very open about your faith, especially on your your new podcast, which is great, the JP Dinell podcast. Fantastic! I listened to all four episodes so far. Your faith, going through the SEAL teams and going through what you did, has it gotten stronger? Has it ever been tested? You're so open about it. So, how how has your experiences affected your faith? Yeah, so I would, you know, I'll go back to you know as a kid you know, being raised in church and having a good relationship with God, being saved at, a, at an early age and baptized at an early age and understanding, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and what God gives us. When I was young, I, had a, I was very close with the Lord, had a very good relationship, left for the military. It strengthened, you know, I was in boot camp and I would pray over the guys every night. They'd ask me to pray, you know, especially when 9-11 happened. It was like, hey, let's let's do this every night. Um, and then, you know, you let that complacency creep in. And, yeah, I wasn't being as disciplined as I needed to. And, you know, my my faith, my faith was always there for with God. That was never questioned. It was never tested or I never doubted um, my relationship. But I would stray from doing what I was supposed to be doing and doing things that I shouldn't have been doing, you know, as as a Christian man. And, you know, definitely was off the path and back on and off. And I'd always in and out of church over the years while in the military. And, you know, when we were in Ramadi, I was praying over the guys every every night. First deployment, same thing. And Afghanistan, you know, and it's unfortunate that, you know, when I'm in these dynamic and dangerous environments that's when i was leaning really heavy into the word and and praying but then i come back home and i'm like i go back to my old ways mm -hmm. you know and, and it's unfortunate but i share that with people to 
to encourage them to stay strong and steady with their faith and their walk with the Lord. Because, you know, let's like, it's not fair for us to only lean on God when we need something and talk to him and spend time with them. Like I want to spend time thanking him and praising him and worshiping him for what he's given me and what he does for me. You know, not just, Hey God, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. Like more of like, Hey God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, and asking for guidance and direction and wisdom and, and, and extended faith and patience and, more compassion for people and empathy and understanding, you know, those are the things that I want to be focused on. And so, yeah, my, my walk was always on and off where it should have been. My faith has always been there. It's always been good. You know, even in, in combat, when you lose teammates, I never once was like, God, I don't understand why you, you know, like I was never mad. Now there's times I would kind of wonder, you know, Mm -hmm. but I was never questioning God in an angry way. I was never like, oh, I can't, why would you do this? It was never like that. It was, I'm not gonna lie. There's sometimes I'm like, God, I don't, I don't, I, I just don't get it, man. I don't understand. Like why, why Mikey? Like why, why this amazing man who lived this incredible life and loved you and served you? Like why? It doesn't make sense to me, you know, but that's part of life there's things that just aren't going to make sense and we have to have faith and we have to seek his understanding and his will, you know? And so, you know, now I'm 40 and I have a family and I I try to be more consistent with doing the things that I should and Mm. make sure I'm not doing the things that I shouldn't do. And, um, you know, staying true to my wife and my family has been a big focus. Can you speak to the transition period, the challenge it is for like a veteran, especially going through like heavy combat, like you guys did transitioning out, maybe not just out of the military, but transitioning out of that role. You mentioned um, one of the podcasts, uh, doing some research at 24, you said, quote, I became angry. I sabotaged my uh, marriage at the time. You said, quote, I was not a good human. You were angry. Yeah. You've been so open about that in some of the interviews you've done. Where did that come from and how, how did you get through it? Yeah, so that was, that, I sabotaged my first marriage when I was young. I was in the SEAL teams and I was just angry and I was just mad. I was just mad. And, you know, I let that anger fester in my heart. I felt a lot of guilt from coming home and Mikey not coming home and Mark not coming home and Cowie and Ryan being wounded and not sure what was going to happen with those guys. A lot of just, man, just a lot of guilt and that guilt and that doubt, that frustration would just open up bad doors and, you know, you start you know, opening up doors to things that you start thinking about things and those that anger just partners with you. And I wasn't in the word. Here's the deal. Like I wasn't reading the Bible. I wasn't praying. I wasn't spending time worshiping God and listening. I wasn't listening to praise and worship. I wasn't going to church. So yeah, it's easy for the anger to fester up inside of you. And, you know, people wonder why they're so angry and mad. It's like, well, what, what do you spend the majority of your time thinking about? Who do you spend time with? Like, what are you doing? And I wasn't, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do as a, as a human. I wasn't controlling my attitude. I was making excuses. I was playing the victim card and, and I was drinking a lot and that's not a good thing, right? That's unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, no, thank you for sharing that. How about the, there's a fast forward a little bit. You can go to training. Uh, they kind of bring you as a training instructor. Yeah. And and you were just kicking everyone's ass. Like you were just basically from what I heard. So much that like people were quitting and they're like, people aren't supposed to quit this phase of training. Like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, well, people quit that phase, but not that much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was like, we're a little extreme on that. Yeah. I went to, so I got pulled from my platoon. I had surgery, ended up with a little bit of nerve damage. And um, I uh, I go to, to Buds to be a Buds instructor to kind of get a little break. And I freaking, man, I was a psychopath. <laughs> I was just not just, I mean, I was crazy. I, I freaking, I lived in the barracks with the students so I could be there with them all the time. Like I had like, bro, Jesus. that was part of like my marriage falling apart. It was like, I was just like in a place. And then when my wife left me, I was just like, all right, check, you know, like, it was just like, I'm going to, my whole goal is to make your life a living hell and get every single one of you guys to quit, which is really embarrassing if you think about it, because 
while yes, it's good to be a gatekeeper for our community, you can still do that. You can still weed out the people that don't need to be there while teaching them lessons and, and just skill sets and, you know, you know, just pouring into those guys. And I wasn't pouring into them. I was literally just being just this nightmare of an instructor and it just wasn't healthy. And uh, yeah, I remember at one point they're like, bro, like, because when somebody quits, they fill out a thing and like, and you figure out the instructor that, and so that facilitated them quitting. Dude, the amount of kids that were quitting when I was at Indoc was was high. I remember one of the one of the instructors going, "Hey, we're not supposed to have this many kids quit. Like <laughs> that if you that's like that's first phase. Like you should be in like that's what first phase does. Like we're we're trying to like." teach them how to be able to go through buzz and everything. And I, I didn't want anything of that. I, I wanted nothing to do with that. And now I can look at it from two, two viewpoints. You know, now that I'm detached, I can say, well, obviously I should have been able to control my attitude and, and been in a much better uh, position to understand that. But then also I look at it from the leadership failure from those that were in charge of me. You have this young, fired up, wound tight seal who just got back from his second combat deployment and that combat deployment was pretty intense lost teammates has a lot of stuff going on like why don't you take care of him like mm -hmm. why, why why don't you guide him and direct him and and mentor and coach him and and say okay hey if he's going to be this hardcore instructor let's let's put him in first phase where he can you know be like that and but still let's refer, let's let's rein him back a little bit and there is none of that and for a long time i hated all the senior instructors that worked with me because i i received none of that mm -hmm. and uh got in trouble for being like that as an instructor <clears throat> jocko heard about it and what does jocko do he takes care of me like he always does. He takes care of his guys and not just like protecting me. And he took care of me by pulling me over to training to work for him so that I could have a purpose. Because he realized like if I was there teaching these guys how to be a SEAL and the skill sets and the advanced skill sets of what we learned in combat, that was going to be much more fulfilling for me. Therefore, it would be easier for him to kind of direct my attitude towards things. Awesome. Before we get to the what you learned from him with the extreme ownership, there's a funny story Jocko tells when you were being a, that crazy instructor. Someone called him and, and it was like that Colonel Troutman moment in Rambo. They're like, come get yeah. your boy. <laughs> come get your boy. Yeah, that was that what I was just talking about was when they're like, hey, come get your boy. Like, he's great, man. <laughs> Come get this guy out of here! Like no questions asked, you get him. You take care of him, right? You, you, you take. You, you, yeah, he'll be your problem now. <laughs> That's all. Get rid of me, man. So hey, so what I want to do? So so now you're working for Jocko. Good point to transition over to extreme ownership. So now, fast forward to your current day. You are the FTX field training director for Echelon Front. Well, actually, yeah, now I'm our chief training officer. We got promoted up to our chief training officer position. And uh, Cody Gandy is our director of all of our field training exercises. But yeah, I came on as the first instructor yeah. at Echelon Front yeah. uh, seven years ago, to, this month, right? Seven years ago, came on board as the first instructor, was helping build out the company, just giving keynotes, doing half-day workshops, full-day workshops. And then as Jacqueline Leif, we're wanting to grow and expand and build the company. They're like, all right, we want to create this hands-on type of leadership training. And they gave that to me. And then they wanted us to do like long range sustainment type of training with clients. Mm -hmm. Gave that to Dave Burke. Um, and then from there, we just started growing out the company and bringing on different instructors. And, you know, the demand for our work has continued to increase. and. You know, it's been good. I, I always see there's a test before there's an opportunity. And there's always like a like the world or universe or God tests you to see how much you really want it. Fast forward to right before you joined Echelon Front. I heard a story where you maybe even struggling with money a little bit, maybe even delivering pizzas. But 
Yeah. You had an offer like like 70 grand for a month of work or two months of work where you're no, like, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was, I was going to go, I had the opportunity <clears throat> to go overseas and teach long range shooting and was going to be, it was for 70 days and the day rate was a thousand dollars a day. Damn. And yeah, it's crazy money, right? Yeah. Like that's really good money. And I just, you know, I was like, all right, cool. So I was going to go do that. And that was right at the time where I was offered to come do Echelon Front and go check out the muster. So it's like, cool, I could go see the muster and talk with Jocko and Leif about possibly doing something with yeah, them. Nothing guaranteed, right? Nothing. No, I'm literally just going to go watch what they do and then go from there. And so I was like, okay, I could go do that. Or I could go overseas and make 70 grand for my family when we had, I mean, we were so tight. We didn't have, we didn't have money, man. And uh, because I put myself and my family in some hard positions and um, yeah. And so that was a hard decision. And my wife being the amazing woman that she is and having that wisdom and that giving me the direction, you know, she told me, she's like, well, you know, Jocko and Leif are never going to screw you over. Mm -hmm. So I think you should go see what this opportunity is. Wow, man. Yeah. So you know what? You ask the wife. You know, you ask the wife, the wife will guide you. That's yeah, fantastic. You know, it's yeah. like the basic principle of just seeking guidance and counsel from other people. Just asking people and just listening to other people with an open mind is really important. Yeah. So let's, let's talk to some leadership principles. So you just mentioned about listening and open-minded, right? So here you are, you have all this combat experience. You're around these great leaders, Chaco and Leif and, and, and your mentor, Seth Stone, and all these amazing people you're around. Like how important is it for a leader to keep their humility where you have a lot of success and you're like, wow, you think you should be speaking more than you're listening. But honestly, when there's a leader, like the great leaders listen more than they talk. Could you speak to the, the importance of humility and how to balance like self-confidence to the need to be humble as a leader? Yeah. I mean, humility is, as we say, the number one characteristic of a great leader. You have to have the ability to listen to people with an open mind. And you have to challenge yourself also as a leader of like, okay, hey, my goal should be to be a silent leader. My goal is to write, I, I don't have to talk all the time. I don't have to give direction. I don't have to give feedback because I've trained up and equipped my people and I, I'm able to subordinate my ego enough towards like, I don't, I don't need to be the one briefing the team. I don't need to come up with a plan. That doesn't matter to me. I'm going to let my, my people go do this. Humility is absolutely critical for you as a leader, but I, I want to be, I want to be clear when we talk about leadership or we're saying the word leader, this is nothing to do with a leadership title. Like I'm not talking about that at all. Like, cause I know somebody could be listening and, and thinking, well, I don't, I'm not in a leadership position. I'm not a boss. You know, your ability. So what leadership is your ability to listen to the people around you, to communicate with the people around you, to influence the people around you, to influence them to believe in the mission, to believe in themselves and go take action. Those are all the different things that helps make you a leader. You know, it's, it's just building relationships and establishing mm -hmm. trust and influence. And so that's what we're talking about. And, and in order for me to do those things, like I have to have humility. Like I just have to be able to have that humility. Mm -hmm. So if you had to define leadership in a sentence or two, what, what, how would you define leadership? Leadership is your ability to build relationships and to influence the people around you to believe in themselves, yep. believe in the mission, and go take action. Yeah, that influence is huge. Because if you go by leadership is influence, right? And then that goes back to what you just said, everyone's a leader. Because you could have yep. influence. It's like you could be the the least tenured person there and have influence. Everyone in the organization can have some form of uh, influence. And you have influence, you're leading, right? Yeah. Awesome. And then how about extreme ownership? How would you define extreme ownership? Man, it's the ability to understand that it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because you... You're not making excuses. You're not blaming mm -hmm. anybody else. You're literally, you take ownership over everything. Mm -hmm. um, and you find ways to 
to make things your fault, your problem, so that you can provide the solution. And somebody's listening going, okay, well, that's great, but there are just some things I can't control. I can't take ownership over something bad happening to me. Okay, cool. What can you take ownership over, though? How you react to it. You know, your attitude, your work ethic, your integrity, your discipline, all those things that we talked about earlier. So extreme ownership is no excuses, no one else to blame. Provide you you take an ownership of the problems and the solutions. Yeah. So I I lead a team here, a sales team of like 10 people. And one of the things early on when I first started studying the material, one of the things I struggled with a little bit, and if you could maybe speak to, can you discuss like the balance that a leader, like you want to take extreme ownership? but still hold your people accountable. So it's not like everything's your fault and they're off the hook where like you could take extreme ownership, but still hold them accountable. Can you speak to like some best practices? So I like that you said that because most people say it that way. And I know your intent, but realize when you're saying, hold your people accountable, that that accountability is a crutch. Okay. I don't want to hold my people accountable. I want to hold myself accountable. Okay. Because here's the deal. If I'm, exemplifying and using extreme ownership. If now all of a sudden I'm like, well, Hey, Joe just made this mistake. I, you know, Hey, I gotta go hold him accountable. Well, then that's like taking the ownership off of me sure. by me saying, well, I'm gonna hold him accountable. And so we have to shift our mindset to like, okay, yeah. Hey, just because you're taking ownership doesn't mean that people aren't responsible for their actions and mm-hmm. you know, the consequences to actions. And just because you own it all, doesn't mean that you do it all. Mm-hmm. Just because you own it all doesn't mean that you do it all. I just want to reiterate that point. So just because you're taking ownership doesn't mean that you're now have, going to have to do all this work. It's this mindset of like, hey, this is my responsibility to get the job done. It's my responsibility to win. It's my responsibility to fix these problems. It's my responsibility to build a relationship. You know, it's all the things that we're supposed to do that helps us win. Like we have to, we have to understand and we have to have a uh, an emphasis over it's my responsibility. And if we teach that to our people, then we have a team of people yeah. fighting to take ownership instead of fighting to cast blame. Yeah. That's what we want. That's the ideal in state and goal that we're looking to obtain. For me, extreme ownership, <clears throat> when you're working with your people, I have to remind myself like, hey, if, if somebody makes a mistake, it's, it's my fault because I didn't train them properly. I didn't communicate with them. I didn't have enough guidelines put in place. I didn't have enough insight over what was happening, you know? And, and, and so then it's also my responsibility to fix and correct the mistakes and give them guidance and give them direction and give them ownership. I want to drive ownership down to you, Joe. Yep. I, I don't want to, I don't want to just maintain all the ownership. I'll, I'm going to keep taking ownership, but I want to drive ownership to give you control, to give you the sense of responsibility. And then, and, and here's a good thing. If I'm holding myself accountable yep. and if I'm taking ownership, guess what the majority of my people will eventually do as well. Take ownership. And hold themselves accountable. Hold themselves accountable. Yep. So, so I don't. I actually want to give ownership so that people actually hold themselves accountable. So basically, we're not holding them accountable. We're giving them ownership, giving them responsibility. We're making them become leaders. I, I think that goes back to. I think maybe might be one of the chapters in the book. Like, there's no bad team, only, only bad, bad leaders. Only yeah, bad chapter leaders. two of extreme ownership. Yeah. If you take responsibility and you take ownership and you want to give, a, that's where the leader has to have their ego in check and have it as low as possible, right? 100% because yeah. if your team's not performing, it's really easy to be like, my team, blah, 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 right? Fill mm-hmm. the blank. And then you start yelling at them and, you know, it's like, okay, well, hold on. They're your team. Mm-hmm. Who taught them? Who trained them? Who equipped them? Who evaluated them? Yep. Because I know somebody's listening going, well, I mean, I just got it. I didn't train them. This is my new team. All right. You're, so you're telling me that you got a new team. And you're just blindly taking over and you're not going to at least get alignment to make sure your team has the capabilities to go execute the work. Yeah. And again, that comes into the whole mindset of like, well, that was somebody else's responsibility or they, Hey, they should have been trained up before I came into the spot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you're right. But they weren't. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to train them? How are you going to equip them? How are you going to get alignment and an understanding of what their capabilities are? It's your job as a leader to do that so that you can lead them.
Yeah. And the one thing I just love about the content you teach there at Echelon Front is that decentralized command where everyone's a leader and you make leaders throughout the organization, right? That, that decentralized right. wherever, that's so powerful. Because if you have like that micro, micro, uh, manager, let's say the work, like that old corporate micromanager, like the opposite of decentralized command, people are afraid to turn the lights on without getting like a memo sent or a permission slip signed, you know, and nothing happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. But yeah, decentralized command is critical to an organization's growth. Centralized command works, but you're never going to be able to grow and expand. And it only works for a certain period of time uh, because most people want the freedom of choice and the ability to go make decisions. And honestly, again, if I drive ownership to my people, they're going to hold themselves accountable. They're going to do the right thing. And if a problem occurs, which it will, while they're doing the work, if I gave them proper ownership and the ability to build out the plans on their own, then they're going to solve the problems when they, when they arise. Gotcha. Well, also, too, another of the principles, simple. I just love how you would think like a Navy SEAL, you'd want to plan as complicated as possible, detailed as possible. I just love how you keep coming back to simple. Everything is simple. And the, the, could you speak to the importance of that? Yeah, I left one thing out on decentralized command that I want to make sure I reiterate is decentralized command is, you know, you're empowering your people to make decisions. That's what it is. And that ties into simple because if my communication is not simple, clear, and concise with my people, are they going to fully understand what I need them to go do? Are they going to understand the mission? Are they going to understand what they're trying to do? No. And if they can't understand the what and the why, then I can't actually do decentralized command, which is driving ownership back to you. And if I say, hey, Joe, this is what we have going on. This is why we're going to go shift and do this mission. Hey, let me know how you want to get the job done. If I don't properly communicate those things, you don't have enough information to make a good decision, a good game plan. And then that's why you can't execute. And yeah, our, our plans were very simple. Yeah. And but we, the other reason why we didn't come up with these crazy complex plans is because something's going to change. Mm-hmm. And if I keep my plan simple, it gives me the ability to, to pivot and make adjustments as needed. Absolutely. Economy crash, COVID, whatever, something you can't control hits yep. you. You got that simple plan. You can fight through it. Yeah. Yep. And then, then you got your plan and what you just prioritize and execute, right? You just kind of, what's most important, knowing things you can do, but yep. you, what's number one, number one, you go and yep. you execute against that. And then lastly, the teamwork, the cover move, but cover work to me is teamwork. Is that fair to say? When you say cover well, move? Yeah. 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 Cover move is what we talk about in regards to teamwork. You know, it's it's understanding what the mission is, what you're trying to accomplish, breaking down silos, and then and moving forward from there. Awesome. One team, one fight, right? One team, one fight. One team, one fight. I love that. One team, one fight. JT, I know your time's tight. Do you have five minutes to go over a couple of fun questions that are wrap things up? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, let's do five minutes. Awesome. Awesome. So JT, just want to switch over to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets so our listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. Just a couple of fun questions. First off, most successful people like you are big routine people. What's your routine to either start your day or end your day? Do you have something that you do every morning or every night just to get your mind right or body right? Yeah. So I would say just more of like my mindset, right? It's the alarms on my phone. It's what I read as I start the day. That just kind of reminds me like it says live to honor them, war against complacency and get after it. And like, so those are my alarms. And so for me, it's just more of like a mindset thing. And then if I set my alarm for jujitsu for like the times that I'm going to go train Mm jujitsu, it says earn your purple belt. Meaning, okay. you know, I want to earn that purple belt that I was given to me. Yep. And, and so for me, it's just more of like a mindset thing of shifting, like, okay, hey, understanding. And and then also I, I look at my calendar. So I look at my calendar before I go to bed. Yeah. So I know what's the next day and the week. And then when I wake up, I also review the calendar again. And that helps me understand what are my priorities for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I can, I can start attacking things. I create lists, mm-hmm. you know, check them off as I go through. And then trying to get a workout in is is critical for me because I always feel better and one, it's something I know I need to be doing and I should be doing, but also just having that time for me just to be solo working out is has been also very helpful. Spending time in the word has been 
Yeah. You know, trying to do that in the morning, not in the evening, like put, you know, in the Bible in Ephesians, it tells us put on the armor of God daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was talking about that complacency early creeping in, you know, you have to put on the armor of, of put on the armor every day. And so when I, if I can read the, read the word in the morning, it helps. And then for jujitsu, unfortunately, it's just not a top priority right now. Okay. Because uh, I love jujitsu. I mean, if I could live the ideal life, it's, I train jujitsu every single day. Oh, and, great, isn't it? So good. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's just not in the cards right now. But I have a really good professor. I train at Double Five in Highlands Village. It's under Rafael Barbosa. His nickname okay. is Formiga. So a lot of people know who Formiga is. If you just type, if you go, if you went to YouTube and just type in Formiga, F O R M I G A, yeah, and then Jujitsu. I mean, yeah. it's just it's gonna be flooded. He's a he's a nine time world champ, twelve times Pan Am's champ, awesome, and as a black belt has around. I think it's over right now. I think uh, I'll just say around yeah. around 400 gold medals from competing just as a black belt. That's crazy. That's so insane. That, that jujitsu at that elite level is just so crazy. Oh, yeah. it's so cool. It's insane. Yeah. How about this? We spoke about so much, JT, your time in, in the SEAL teams, Task Unit Bruiser, your transition out, all the leadership lessons you learned from Jocko and Leif and Seth. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away, from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Do an honest, honest self-assessment of your capabilities and your skill sets as a leader slash human, and then pick something that you can work on and go get to work. Perfect. Let's just say like you and your wife have been fighting a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what do fights stem from? Communication problems. 99.9% of the time it's communication. Okay. What's a really important part of communication? It's listening. I bet you if you were to be more intentional with just listening mm-hmm. and listening with intent, and checking your ego when you're communicating with your significant other and saying, all right, how are they right and how am I wrong? What can I do to fix this situation? Man, it would eliminate a lot of problems. Heck yeah. Oh my gosh. So crazy. Just listen, listen some more. It's just, and ego gets in the way. You know what I mean? It's so crazy. Yeah. The ego is the enemy, man. Now, ego is the, uh, no doubt. How about this? A fun question, JP. If you could spend the day, with anyone famous not famous alive or dead who would you spend the day with and jesus would be awesome that'd be pretty wild. what would you do what would you do see what his game is like now uh it would be cool just to just to kind of just see and watch him interact and teach you know yeah um, but you know i know i'll see him one day which is good so um outside of jesus like honestly like man there's just so many there's so many people man that's that's a really good question i would say Teddy Roosevelt would be cool. Oh, take like Sam Juan Hill with him or something, right? Just get on the course and, oh my gosh, get on the Amazon with him or something. Yeah. That would that. be freaking awesome, wouldn't it? He could flip you in the, like judo flip you in the White House or something. How great would I that know, be? right? Like that yeah. would be pretty rad. I wish he could run for president now. That's what we need. Something like that, man. Let's go. That, that's on. awesome. How about the last question? JP Dinell, if you had to get a quote, or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Well, I have two of them already. One is, uh, this too shall pass. And it's a reminder when times are hard to keep your head up. And when times are really good, to stay humble. 
because it can all fall apart. Yep. And then across like my upper chest area, I got dream as you'll live forever, live as you'll die today. Wow. Dream as you'll live forever. Live as you'll die today. Live as you'll die today. Dang. Mic drop. Yeah. So I got that after Ramadi. Um, and then also I have lived to honor them. Mm-hmm. So pretty wow. simple reminder. Wow. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up. The guest is JP Dinell. JP, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it's a, a, an incredible hour. The, uh, the, the, the sour apple sniper's kicking in, man. I'm ready to go, uh, do some calls or something now. Oh, my goodness. JP, if, our, if people are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? So, uh, at JP Dinell on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And then I think LinkedIn is just JP Dinell. And then make sure you're following Echelon Front at Echelon Front on Instagram. You can go to echelonfront.com to check out what we do. And uh, if you want me to come work with your company or any of our other awesome instructors, or if you want to come out to one of our individual FTXs, which is all of our hands-on scenario-based leadership training, check it out. All of those events sell out, and we already have a few on the calendar for next year. So. Uh, one, thank you. I got I got to hit one of those FTXs. They look incredible. And now, don't forget the podcast, man. The new podcast. The JP oh Dinell. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Sorry. Um, yeah, I got my new podcast. So it's just JP Denell podcast on YouTube. It's uh, YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. So if you want to check it out on YouTube, check it out. I'm going to put all of them in the show notes. So definitely sign up for JP's podcast. It's awesome. But JP, cool. it's an honor. I appreciate you. Thank you for your service to our country. And uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with JP. Such an honor to have him on the show. If you could, before you take off, I just created the new Built Not Born blog, one blog post a week summarizing the best ideas, gear, products, discussed by each guest in a blog post that you could read in two minutes or less sent directly to your inbox each week. The link to sign up is in the show notes. You could just Google built not born blog, sign up, easy to sign up, easy to cancel. If you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Talk soon.